Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And joining me on today's podcast is Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you doing? Surprise! I, I'm on the show. You're on the show? <laughs> who's, who's, who's shocked? I uh, drove 600 miles just to see you today. Oh, that's great. And I to pre- come back. I, pre- I appreciate the effort. To come back to our lovely town of Athens, I'm happy to be home. Happy to be home to talk about a lot of news. We're going to dive into a lot of topics today. This is me kind of a free-flowing show, so we might be all over the place. But some of the things that are on our mind today, uh, the redistricting session began in Atlanta last week. That is going to be a three-week special session where the legislature considers redistricting. And I believe they're going to consider something related to Buckhead cityhood. Though I'll be honest, I don't actually know what's going on with that. We got some more reading up to do on that. But we'll talk about redistricting. We will celebrate, and, and congratulations to everybody who celebrates. It's Infrastructure Week, finally. Finally. Late on Friday night, Democrats in the U.S. House passed the Bipartisan Infrastructure Framework legislation, the BIF, which we all know what that means and are all over that shorthand. Um, but they passed big bi- bipartisan infrastructure investments, um, which is a big win for the Biden administration, and it also ties America. in- in America, yes. Uh, it also ties into the debate over the Build Back Better economic plan. Or BBB. BBB also. Triple B. Yes. Uh, take take notes at home. There's going to be a quiz later. Um, so we're going to talk about the status of that legislation. And then we'll also talk today about some fun rumors, or at least Democrats will probably think these rumors are fun, that David Perdue, former Senator David Perdue, is considering a primary challenge against Governor Kemp. Um, as you all know... Uh, Governor Kemp is he's facing a primary challenge from Vernon Jones, but that's not a very competitive one. And so that has left the door open for somebody who could bring Trump's endorsement and potentially challenge the governor, keep him from winning reelection. I'm getting a little bit of Ted Kennedy, Jimmy Carter vibes from that. So we'll talk about that um, and any other news and stuff that, that pops up here when we are recording here. But Luke, I think we can start with what's been going on in Washington. Um, so Democrats successfully passed the bipartisan infrastructure bill. That was a bill that was being held up in the House by progressives in the House that was being used as leverage to get the Senate to agree to the more expansive Build Back Better economic plan legislation, the legislation with big investments in job programs, in human services programs, and in investments to combat climate change. But as of Friday night, uh, progressives in the House seem to give up that piece of leverage um, and and at least signal that they are going to punt the Build Back Better legislation over to the Senate and and let them kind of figure out Democrats' mess. Um, What did you think both about Democrats getting uh, the – bipartisan infrastructure bill done and and what it means for build back better well i will start with the the biff the bipartisan infrastructure bill and say that it's you know very long overdue i think because it's a good bill is it perfect no are there things in it that progressives don't like of course there's lots of things conservatives don't like in that bill um and and i think what has been really interesting is that, you know, you and I have discussed 
Build Back Better, the bipartisan infrastructure bill a lot. We've discussed the political machinations and strategy of tying these two bills together. And, you know, from my recollection, I was very positive of that idea. And I think this ties in directly with something else that I expressed, uh, you know, positive opinion of that I've now changed, which is the idea that it didn't really matter when these bills got done, what mattered that bills got done and i think the time window or horizon on that uh political strategy had just ran its course because while i i am of the opinion i don't think terry mcauliffe would have won virginia if bill back better or the bipartisan infrastructure bill had been passed a week earlier i, I think i think that was kind of in the cards for more local reasons i think we were getting to a point where with unified control of the federal government, Democrats were just looking incompetent. And while, yes, people will be, you know, give Democrats some credit for passing the bipartisan infrastructure bill, if this had dragged out for a couple more months, you know, eventually the idea that, like, Democrats are incompetent would just sink in, I think. And by getting this bill passed and, you know, kind of moving forward with just focusing on Build Back Better, I think that frees up a lot of that narrative that Democrats can't get anything done because I think even, you know, casual viewers of politics would be like Senate Republicans are obstructionist and don't like to let Democratic presidents do anything. And so the fact that they had already signed off on something in pretty big numbers and the House couldn't get it done, I think it was starting to look bad. And so the fact that we finally got this done is one great for the country because there's a lot of really great things in the bill that needs to be done, uh, like, you know, preparing electric vehicle infrastructure, like replacing lead pipes. And just frankly, a lot of stuff is just falling apart (laughs) and getting some funds to actually fix crap is really important. And so there's some climate provisions in there, too, that, yeah. You know, they get they get short shrift a little bit because they're the bigger climate provisions are in the other bill. But, um, you know, even within a piece of legislation focused on on roads and bridges, and there's a lot of important things for the climate in, in that uh, <clears throat> bill, too. And, and it is good for Democrats um, to have start putting points on the board, given that they've had full control of government now for what are we, we're, we're a year since the election, about nine months or so, 10 months since they took over Congress. Um, so yeah, they're and, happy to put points on the board. Yeah, and, and I think it's, it is it is important and good because Joe Biden ran on his ability to do something like this. And while it, not, it won't fix Washington overnight, just the fact that he proved that he was able to do it, I think is, is, is very worthwhile. Um, Shifting to build back better now, I think the other thing that is in a very similar strain is that I think progressives had used up their ability to actually have leverage in this situation because one thing that I think people underestimate, and I, I've seen this both from just being an observer of uh, federal politics, of reading history, but even just being on the ground in you know, Democratic circles. One thing that people truly underestimate about folks who are more moderate is just like the social norm differences between moderates and progressives and the like far left folks. At a certain point, I think the House progressives were just pissing off 
<laughs> Joe Manchin and Cinema and probably some others. And that like they, they just weren't getting anything for holding this up any longer. They were they were just pissing them off to the point where they were, you know, getting pretty close to just saying, Screw it, I don't even want to work with you at all and you know, I don't want to do this bill at all. <laughs> you guys can just, you know, screw off. And I think um I think some of the more savvy political operators in the progressive caucus uh, have picked up on that. And that's part of the reason why, you know, after what I feel like was a couple weeks where it seemed like there would be this huge progressive mutiny if they ever brought the bill, uh, the bipartisan infrastructure bill to the floor without more assurances on Build Back Better, uh, you know, it ended up being, what, six? And and I, I, I was surprised by it being that low of a number, but... That You're I, talking about six progressive members of the House that did not vote for the bipartisan infrastructure bill, right? You know, after it seemed like it would be, you know, thirty to sixty or something like that. So, I think that is very illustrative of um, everybody kind of figuring out that this crap just needed to get done. Yeah, I think it's reflective of progressives with the exception of the ones who voted against the bipartisan infrastructure bill, I think it's a recognition on some of their parts that they are close to whatever deal they're going to get. And the options moving forward are a piece of legislation that looks mostly like what has been negotiated into the final text that was introduced in the house this week. This is the final text of build back better. That was the deal that they're going to get. And they're either going to get that deal they're going to dot some T's, cross some I's, make some final changes. There will be a final push in the House on paid family leave, which got put back into the bill. But roughly, that's what it's going to be, and it's either going to be that or it's going to be nothing. And Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema have signaled clearly that they are willing to accept nothing. And when they are willing to accept nothing, I think that's the piece that really limits leverage on the part of progressives. And so I think it's useful for progressives to essentially take that deal, let everything go in the House, and then put it on Joe Biden and say, President Biden, this is your signature domestic legislative proposal. It is the totality of your agenda, at least on the economic side. And it is going to be your job to get it across the finish line with Manchin and Cinema, and progressives will have effectively signed off on it. And the, you know, the other piece of it too is that there were, what were there, 13 Republicans that voted Something with like that. Democrats in the House to pass bipartisan infrastructure framework. So when Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal signaled that there was at least a large block of progressives that were willing to push this forward and basically get it off the plate of the House, they also had limited leverage left because Pelosi had Republicans that she could rely on. So the threat of that progressive blockade really holding that bill up they were losing leverage because pelosi had republicans in the bag to vote for that legislation but i think that you know they could have pushed a little harder people could have gotten more pissed off and it could have contributed to this whole thing falling apart but i think their recognition that it's time to get the deal and it's time for joe biden to close it and this is what joe biden ran on doing his history in the senate his relationships with moderate members um, this is going to be his thing to to wrap up here. And the, and the progressives did what they could to make the bill what they wanted it to be, um, even though it is missing a lot of things and, and missing a degree of scale 
in terms of how big these programs are and how long they last. Um, it is missing some of that from the original proposal, but I think it's just the best that they're going to get. So two, two closing thoughts on this topic. <clears throat> the first is, and, and it, it goes without saying, there's other people who will say this better, but like, dear God, Nancy Pelosi, she's very good at running the house. She, you know, if they do gig a build back better, you know, plan across the table as well and gig it and send it across the hall to the Senate, it's pretty hard not to just, you know, refer to her as master of the house because she has passed things that nobody else uh, has, has been able to do in my opinion, because this is my second point, which is it is amazing what can be done when presidential focus is actually given to something and the attention of the president is given to something because I have noticed, especially with this administration, I think the previous administration clarifies this significantly, but like there's a real difference in the tone and tenor of debates in Congress when the president actually like laser focuses on something because it, to me throughout this entire multi-month process, it was really clear when Joe Biden actually was like exerting his presence there and the fact that despite donald trump declaring every week was infrastructure week he never actually pushed on that which i still think is really weird because he loves to build crap (laughs) but still uh, i digress the more important thing though is that you know biden seems like he's cleared some of these other issues off his plate at least temporarily the virus uh, you know the coronavirus may have heard of it uh it, it's it seems like those numbers are going down and in a good direction and he has you know j- gone back from his overseas trip with the uh climate talks and so it'll be interesting to me to see just sort of how his focus changes and if this is Uh, a restart for his administration because I think uh, they're in desperate need of one (laughs) and that this is potentially the start of a reboot or is the like last note of the successful period of the Biden administration. And for obvious reasons, uh, I I really hope it's a reboot and not the end of something. Yeah. Let's talk about why uh, Democrats feel they need a reboot. Um, So you have probably seen in the news by now that there were off-year elections, uh, state elections in Virginia and in New Jersey, um, and then a host of local elections in um, cities across the country. Democrats kind of across the board did very poorly in those elections. It was not a good election night for Democrats. Most notably, Terry McAuliffe, the former governor of Virginia, lost his bid for what was effectively re-election. He was actually coming back and running again after taking a term off because in Virginia, they only let you serve one term as governor, but he was effectively an incumbent Democrat running for reelection in Virginia. He lost to Glenn Youngkin, who's a uh, relatively unknown Republican figure who was not a Trumper, who I think is notable for his position within the party as somebody who was not beholden to Donald Trump and did not draw a lot of his political power and influence from his relationship with Donald Trump. So Glenn Youngkin was able to win that governor's race in Virginia. Republicans also won control of their House of Delegates. Um, Democrats maintained control of their Senate, but uh, Democrats lost, in addition to control of the House of Delegates, they lost every statewide race for those top offices in Virginia, governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general, those sorts of things. There was also a large swing against Democrats in New Jersey. New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy barely won re-election in a state that is a very blue state. 
Um, and the swing against Democrats and the swing against Murphy was larger than the swing against Democrats in Virginia, which was notable. And then Democrats and backers of progressive causes lost local elections and referendum votes in a host of cities across the country. So effectively, what you saw, similar to the 2017 elections that were the first uh, high-profile blowback against President Trump, these elections were a high-profile blowback against President Biden and Democrats. And it raises the question, Luke, particularly for Georgia and for Democrats in Georgia, what those results mean for how Democrats should approach the next year in the lead up to the 2022 midterms. Remember that Senator Raphael Warnock is going to be up for re-election. Um, there will be tight elections, most likely for both Congresswoman Carolyn Bordeaux and Lucy McBath in the 6th and 7th, depending on how those districts are redrawn. Um, there could be other Democrats uh, in the Georgia House delegation that, that may be challenged to keep their seats as well. Luke, drawing on what you saw, you know, obviously Georgia is a different state than Virginia. This is a off-year election, tons of caveats about what lessons you can learn, but I, I don't think these are totally irrelevant. What lessons do you think Georgia Democrats need to draw about how they need to conduct themselves up at, up to the midterms, looking back on what happened in, in Virginia and those other elections on Tuesday? I think the most interesting thing about those elections in Virginia is the fact that Terry McAuliffe, the loser of that election, got more votes than Ralph Northam, the winner of the election in 2017. And the reason why that is so interesting to me is that a fundamental premise, I think, among most political consultants I know and, you know, <laughs> used, used to work with uh, since I, you know, now I'm a lawyer, and so I'm, I'm getting to enjoy that <laughs> instead. And so I haven't spent as much time as usual. But the consensus among everybody was that post-Trump, there would be a pretty significant decrease in political engagement, voter turnout, et cetera, et cetera. We were all very tired. <laughs> we're all very tired. We're still tired. But, I, I mean, I, I think it's it's incredible that the turnout was – as high as it was, uh, you know, first, I will say, you know, just because I feel like it's necessary for democracy is that Virginia passed a bunch of laws making it easier to vote and Republicans still won. So, you know, I think that is something that should be noted, uh, but that is not the main point of your question. Uh, the thing I take away from it is that things still feel weird. Joe Biden campaigned on the battle for the soul of America. And I feel like at least a subtext of that campaign slogan and that campaign message is, Hey, things suck right now and are weird. I will make things normal again. And to some extent he's done that, but I feel like with the Delta variant, with the withdrawal from Afghanistan and the malaise that was trying to get the bipartisan infrastructure bill passed until it just got passed recently, things just still felt weird. And to the extent that Democrats control all of Washington and Democrats were the incumbent party and Terry McAuliffe especially f would feel like an incumbent to voters in Virginia and things weren't good yet, I think they got punished for that. 
And rightfully or wrongfully, I think that is a big part of what happened in those elections were voters making it pretty clear that they had expectations that things would be better by now. And I think some of those expectations are, are unrealistic. But I think it is notable that they punished the party in charge. And so the thing that I will be very curious about turning to Georgia now is how does that translate? Because in Virginia, if you were upset with like how school reopening was being handled or how the curriculum in the schools were being handled, you could blame Democrats because they are in charge. And that's just not the case in Georgia. In, in Georgia, while yes, Joe Biden won and we have two Democratic senators, the state of Georgia on a state level is very much still controlled by Republicans, despite those you know federal elections. And so if voters are dissatisfied with the status quo, which to me is what the Virginia and New Jersey elections signify, then who they blame? Do they blame the people who are running state government, which will be the vast majority of who people are voting for in 2022 in Georgia, or do they blame the people who run the federal government? And I, I don't think the answer to that's clear because there's still a year ago and things can change pretty quickly because based off of the 2020 elections, both you and I, and we talked about on the show, there are recordings. We felt pretty optimistic about how things looked in 2020 for Democrats, but I think it's safe to say we both are a little less optimistic about now, and I think that just signifies how much things can change. I think that the the key takeaway for Democrats, I think, is to question an assumption that I think you and I both have shared since the 2020 elections, and as we have discussed the direction of the Georgia Republican Party and how much influence Trump has on that party. You know, we are actively watching the Trump slate of candidates who will run for Secretary of State, for U.S. Senate, potentially for governor, as we'll talk about here with David Perdue a little later. And there was, I think, this assumption that you and I both shared that Republicans were much more likely to uplift people in their party who backed President Trump, who bought into his misinformation related to elections, and who were willing to carry his banner forward. And in Virginia, it's very notable that Glenn Youngkin was not that candidate. Now, there's things he did and said, issues that he focused on, like critical race theory in schools, that does sort of speak to that group. But importantly, Yunkin walked a fine line sort of between those two factions of the Republican Party and sort of brought back to life the faction that is represented here by somebody like Jeff Duncan, brought that back to life and then was successful in winning an election in a state that is bluer than Georgia and in a state that has elected Democrats consistently for the last seven or eight years. Well, the one caveat I would add to that is I think... Young, I, because I, I, I mostly agree with everything you just said, Cal. But the one thing I would say is that Youngkin was one of the better candidates I've seen that was Trump without Trump, in the sense that he took the parts of the Trump agenda and the Trump style of campaigning and politics that were positive for Republicans' electoral successes and managed to avoid 
the negative parts of it, uh, primarily by avoiding Donald Trump himself, but also just by not causing a bunch of unnecessary controversies that led to blowback. It's like Yunkin, I, I think, was a pretty skillful operator of finding the pressure points that would not turn off independent voters that would really rile up the Republican base and make the independent voters say, hmm, he may have a point there without doing it in a blatantly racist, sexist, or just, you know, jerk way that, you know, Trump's default is. But so I would argue, though, that I at least don't think that and to this point have not thought that a candidate like Glenn Youngkin could win a Republican primary in Georgia. Well, he didn't win a Republican primary, which I think is an important point. He won at a convention. And so that that will be a big difference. I agree with you wholeheartedly that, you know, he had that benefit that Virginia the Republican Party was quite smart in running a convention, which, uh, you know, in the before times would have actually probably led to a crazier candidate. But in the Trump era, the party establishment folks that know Robert's rules of order <laughs> can, can get a less crazy candidate across the finish line. Well, they can do that in Virginia. I think jury's out on whether or not, of course they don't, they, in Georgia there will be party primaries, but whether or not, even in a sense, there are grownups within the Georgia Republican party that could put a non Trumpy candidate as the nominee for some of their top positions, that is TBD. But I think what that raises is if there is a resurgence, whether it be from Trumpy people who change the frame of their messaging, or whether it be from people who are not very Trumpy and can find a way to win primaries, and I could see somebody like Governor Kemp filling this role, I could see somebody like Brad Raffensperger filling this role, there was a pretty open door for those non-Trumpy candidates to bring back into the fold some of the Republicans who had voted for Democrats in 2016 and 2020. Maybe they voted for Northam in 2017 in Virginia. It was pretty easy for them to ultimately bring some of those voters back in to support Republicans after they had switched to Democrats. And I think that is a key question that Democrats need to consider as they head for the midterm elections, because if they continue this the the strategy that McAuliffe had that that clearly failed of trying too much to tie the Republican candidate to President Trump, who was demonstrably unpopular both in Virginia and in Georgia. Um, if they tried to tie candidates too much to that, it doesn't appear that that's a very successful strategy. And so to me, it raises what particularly Senator Warnock can do what Senator Ossoff can do to support Senator Warnock's reelection and what Democrats running in the congressional delegation can do, which is to get, they've got bipartisan infrastructure across the finish line, getting the build back better economic plan across the finish line is vital. And then I think both Senator Warnock, all of the Democrats in the congressional delegation need to have very disciplined, very direct messaging that basically is a continuation of the messaging from the 2020 runoff that says, you sent us to Washington and here are some concrete things that we did for you. And I think that they can let go of a lot of the Trump messaging, but I think they need substantive things to bring to voters and they need to continue the sort of frame of the messaging that they had before this competence versus chaos messaging 
that they cannot cede the ground of competence. And I think what happened in Virginia to some extent, when people were upset about how things were going with schools, were upset about this sort of general dysfunction in Washington, which is a much more local thing to Virginians than it is to Georgians, that they lost that mantle of um, being the, the productive governing party and I think Democrats, if they also lose that reputation or they cannot capitalize on the things that they've actually done in Washington with their messaging, it is going to be very difficult, I think, for them to reelect Senator Warnock. Um, they might lose seats, Democrats in the congressional delegation, um, if they are no longer the, the party of competent governance come next November. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think the... I think part of that that's really interesting is that, you know, I'm not in Virginia, but a lot of podcasts, a lot of reading I've done has really pointed to the school's issues, one of the big Achilles heels for the McAuliffe campaign, especially uh, was, you know, being called a gaffe where Terry McAuliffe said something along the lines of, you know, keeping parents out of schools or... Well, he he effectively said parents should not have a say in what their children learn in schools in a direct response to the <coughs> the pushback at school board meetings, both about the curriculum and about how they approach closures related to COVID. Right. And, you know, to me, that is just, like, I don't agree with that position. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I, yeah, I would think it's probably in, you know, his most honest moments, probably just a gaffe and that he did not articulate what he meant very well. But it's just, obviously, parents should have a role in schools. And I think there is a trap for Democrats here in not taking into consideration what average voters, average people's opinions are because McAuliffe, while, you know, by all means was a pretty popular and pretty successful governor. He all, he suffered from the same thing. I think Hillary Clinton suffered from as being perceived as the electoral democratic elite and to the extent you're ever saying something that makes you look like you're looking down on voters which i think that comment very much comes off that way even if it's intellectually true it is not i don't think it's intellectually true right right but even if it was like my point is it's not politically helpful and i think warnock hasn't really done that yet and i i don't think he would um, but to the extent if he did, that would be where I think he would have a lot of problems because just by being a senator from a red state, effectively, I would say, at least with who is currently running the state of Georgia, uh, you know, it's still a red state. I think he has more move to to, you know, move around and to make it a one on one race with whoever his eventual opponent is rather than getting blamed for anything that's happening in Washington or Georgia, whereas Brian Kemp or whoever the Republican nominee for governor is topic to be discussed in a moment, um, you know, will have a much harder time uh, of doing that because they are the ones responsible for what's happening in schools. They are the one responsible for what's happening in the Georgia economy to some extent. And Democrats are not. And so I just think the dynamic will play out very, very differently in Georgia than it did in Virginia or New Jersey um, because of that. Well, the other thing, I wonder to what extent there will really be an election 
centered around accountability for COVID policies because it was notable that both Virginia and New Jersey were in sort of the top group of states in the most days of school that were either missed or spent virtual during the pandemic. That's very interesting. I don't know that. And I, I don't know. I'm, I don't know for certain, but I'm sure that Georgia is probably near the bottom. Um, and you know, as we've discussed extensively, the, there probably is a little less COVID fatigue in this state compared to some of the more liberal states because there were just fewer restrictions put in place from start to finish. And so, yes, I'm sure that there are parents out there. There may be some listening to this podcast who have had tons of frustration with how their schools have handled scheduling, um, with the going back and forth between in-school and in-virtual school when cases pop up. But I think that that concern is both a little less uh, prevalent among Georgia voters just because of, and among parents in Georgia, just because the pandemic was handled so differently here. And um, the fact that all of this is going to come to a head in an election that's going to be in a year, right, whereas, you know, Virginia and New Jersey voted last week. And by that point, you'll have um, children five to 17 are already approved for the vaccine. I think it's possible that you have children younger than that approved for some form of a vaccine by that point. Um, and so we may be further from the pandemic and further from its effects. And then it was also notable to me, looking back at 2020, President Trump lost this state and, and that election was very much a referendum on how he handled COVID and his general approach to governance. But that uh, judgment was not rendered further down the ticket. Like Democrats had an opportunity to pick up a significant number of state house seats, maybe had some opportunities in the state Senate, and they could not effectively tie their local opponents to national Republicans and, and bring them down with President Trump. And we're going to be even further from all of that when we get to the midterms. And so I think that's another important factor to consider about Democrats not focusing too much of their messaging on what's going on nationally or what threat national Republicans may pose, but what they can say about what they've done for people locally, because what is happening with President Trump and the party does not seem to be filtering down to state officials in the way that you think it might, given the influence that he has over the party that we've discussed. It's just that impact is just not there. And I think, you know, last thing I would say about this is the <clears throat> takeaway I take from this Virginia election and the California recall is Terry McAuliffe, at least in my opinion, was very much looking back, whereas Gavin Newsom was looking forward in his messaging because in the way in I, COVID politics is what made me think about this. Uh, Gavin Newsom was pointing out that all of his Republican opponents, but especially Larry Elger, served a you know present danger to california's covid policies and like we need to you know you might not love me but keep me in here because these guys are crazy and they're gonna screw up the good trajectory we're on in california and i think that scared a lot of voters into supporting him in a very present way whereas for terry mcauliffe in virginia at least from my impression of reading a lot of coverage of that race, was very much, you know, hey, you remember that Donald Trump guy? Wasn't he bad? We don't want that again. And Glenn Youngkin has an R by his name, and so did Donald Trump. So they're the same. And it's just like he didn't hit nearly as well because Larry Elger, in a lot of ways, 
legitimately was like Donald Trump in a way that Glenn Youngkin was not. And I think everything you said, Kyle, kind of matches up with this, but I think the most important thing that I think Democrats could very easily miss in examining these two elections are making sure that you actually clearly focus on the future and making policy forward rather than looking back on the things that either party has done you know use the things from the past as supporting evidence for why the future will be the way that you say it will be either if you elect you know the democrats or the republicans based off the records and not focus on the records as the argument the records are supporting evidence not the argument well, and the thing to to make that a little more concrete for Georgia Democrats, I think what that means is you can point to some of the things that you've succeeded on in your COVID response, expanding the child tax credit, getting infrastructure funds for things like cleaning lead pipes and investing in rural broadband, making healthcare more affordable. You can point to all of those things, but there will be plenty of stuff left undone from the Biden agenda in the first two years. And it was clear that both Ossoff and Warnock ran on that agenda and on being a partner to President Biden to enacting that agenda. It has been very clear looking at Congress that Republicans want no business in helping with the majority of that agenda. You know, there was a limited number of them that played ball on infrastructure, but the majority of them did not. And there was a lot of criticism of Republicans who voted for infrastructure in the House because Republicans would argue that they actually bailed out Nancy Pelosi from her own problems within our caucus. You can debate whether or not that's Nancy Pelosi's skill coming through or, or whether or not those Republicans actually bailed out <coughs> Democrats or not. But there will be plenty left undone. And Democrats have a clear argument that Republicans will not participate in achieving some of those goals that Democrats outlined. And I think that if you are fighting the election on that turf and not getting caught up in the culture war hysteria around critical race theory or whatever other issues become the cause celeb of the moment for the Trumpy wing of the Republican Party in Georgia, that you are on much more solid ground to keeping the voters that came to you in 2016 and 2018 and 2020, keeping those in the Democratic fold um, instead of letting them walk right back to the Republicans. Let's move on here, though, Luke, and, and talk about redistricting. Um, so as we mentioned at the top, the legislature has convened. They convened last week, uh, starting last week for three weeks, to redraw the state's maps for both their congressional and state house and state senate maps. And what we understand early about the maps, starting here with the, the state house and state senate, and then I know you want to say a word, Luke, about the congressional maps that we talked about briefly before, but basically the framework, according to analysis from Stephen Fowler at Georgia Public Broadcasting, and I think AJC has done similar analysis, in the State House, the map that has been proposed by Republican leadership would actually reduce the number of Republican seats in the House, likely from the current 103 seats they have to 97 Republicans. And there were six pairs of incumbent Republicans that were drawn into districts together, meaning that those Republicans are either gonna to have to choose to run against each other or one will choose to retire. But effectively what is sort of the core analysis of what's going on in the state house is Republicans are willing to reduce the total number of members they have with the hopes of keeping 
their majority for the decade. Um, and we'll talk about why that is in a second. The Senate map is a little more aggressive in favor of Republicans. They would give up one Republican seat. They would go from 34 Republicans in the Senate to 33 Republicans. All of this is based on analysis, based on the vote totals from 2020, by the way. Um, so they would lose one seat, but they would keep a about a 10-seat majority in the Senate, leaving the Senate really pretty out of reach for Democrats unless you know some electoral trends changed really significantly. Um, so that that's kind of the, the first pass at what's going to happen in the state house and state Senate. Luke, I think if, if you've listened to us talk about redistricting before, and it is, I think an accepted assumption now, re- a relatively unquestioned assumption that the goal of Republicans in this redistricting process, because they control the whole thing is for them to draw maps to their maximum partisan advantage. So if you've heard us talk about that before, I would be a little surprised to see a map that just clearly l- signals that Republicans are willing to lose seats. You know, we, we talked about this once and you wondered whether Republicans might, in a very aggressive position, try to put themselves in position for a supermajority again. Why are Republicans releasing a map where they would lose seats? I think the answer to that is pretty easy to come to, which is another thread in what I talked about previously when we've discussed redistricting, which is that they have no choice because the places in which Republicans do well in the state of Georgia have been shrinking and the places where Democrats do well in Georgia have been growing. And at a certain point, the arithmetic catches up with you and you have a choice to either create a map that you can, you know, probably the next election or maybe even the next two, three elections, you could have uh, a solid majority or maybe even a super majority, but you put yourself at pretty great risk that if anything goes wrong and the state shifts a little bit in a different direction or probably more frightening for Democrat uh, or for Republicans, excuse me, it shifts in the direction. It continues to shift in the, you know, more Democrat direction that the state has been going in. You lose the whole thing. And so it seems like what they have done here is to pick a map that, gives them the best ability to maintain the majority and they aren't going for the rafters. They're, they're going to, you know, small C conservative map that allows them to maintain control of the chambers. And to me, that's not shocking because that is what I think is, is, you know, politically is the better decision uh, because it's really easy to create some maps that, you know, help you win for one or two uh, turn or um, helps you win for one or two cycles, but it's pretty hard to make one that uh, can last a decade. And this, to me, feels like a map that is made with the uh, objective of holding on to the cham- the uh, you know, the chambers for the decade, and yeah. also changing all the numbers around just to annoy me. <laughs> Yeah, all of the district numbers you currently know, they may shift by one or two. A lot of people are going to have to remake their yard signs. Yeah. Um, I want to come back to this assumption. It It is readily assumed, I think by all people involved, I don't even think you see Republicans rebutting this notion that because Republicans control the redistricting process, 
they are going to draw maps that are the most politically advantageous to them. Yeah, to their credit, they have not hid that objective. And, you know, they they may, if they get pressure on this point, they may come back and say, look, we, we drew a map that gave Democrats more seats and, and we are much more fair than, than you say we are. Um, there may be half a leg to stand on the hou- in the House. There really isn't any leg to stand on in the Senate for that point. But, you know, a lot of the conversation of redistricting heading into these uh, this redistricting cycle that states are doing across the country was this push for nonpartisan redistricting states. Some states had implemented commissions that would do nonpartisan redistricting. Um, but what I've started to see a little bit, and I think I see this from both sides of the aisle, Republicans being not shy about maximizing their political power and redistricting. And I think Democrats being a little bit regretful of in some other states where they have allowed nonpartisan bodies to draw maps, which in um, another state, I think it was Colorado, a state that is handily controlled by Democrats, where they could gerrymander their map and they could uh, maybe shut Republicans out almost entirely from the congressional delegation in Colorado. Instead, a map was produced by that commission there that gave Republicans much more power than they would have had if Democrats were just in charge. North Carolina passed a very aggressive Republican gerrymander of their congressional map that is going to be almost impossible for Democrats to be successful in. Um, but on on that same token, both in Illinois, and it seems likely in Maryland, Democrats in those states are going to pass democratically uh, are going to pass democratic gerrymanders of their maps. And the, the Illinois map, I, I think, is like kind of crazy if if you want to Google it. Have has your thinking changed at all, Luke, about nonpartisan redistricting and whether Democrats have sort of unilaterally disarmed in some places to their own detriment when so much of the battle between Democrats and Republicans at this point doesn't boil down to policy or ideology differences, but boils down to a differential willingness to uh, weaponize the the systems and structures of our democracy. Has, has your thinking changed on that at all? No, it, it honestly hasn't. I think the only way that you can successfully preserve the democracy is by successfully preserving it. And while there are states like Georgia and Illinois that are going to gerrymander the hell out of them as the best they can, I think it is better in the long term to have as much bipartisanship slash nonpartisanship injected into the system with how polarized everything is to the extent that we can implement systems on the margins in some states to lower the temperature of polarization. I think that's a good thing. And even if that's a short-term harm to Democrats, I think it will be a long-term benefit to the country. And, you know, hopefully I'm right, (laughs) but we'll see. Uh, Because I think the only way that the composition of our leadership and politics is going to change is if we're implementing systems that encourages that change. And even if uh, that's not going to happen nationwide, I think just it will help on the margins. I really do think that. And I think it is easy to keep playing the political game and 
to do the things that you find objectionable that your opponents are doing because they're doing it. But in the long term, I think that just exacerbates the problem. And so I understand and I'm very sympathetic to Democrats feeling that frustration. But I think in the long term, it will be better for the country and will hopefully lower the temperature um, because that that is what you know, it's the only way we're going to get out of the vast majority of the mess we're in. And, you know, obviously I, I, I'm a Democrat and I'd rather have more Democrats in office than not, but I, I'm hopeful that the Republicans that get into office from those states that have more competitive maps will not be the same nature and tenor of the Marjorie, Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world. Because while, yes, in Colorado, I think is a great example, are there more Republican-leaning or competitive districts in Colorado because they have a nonpartisan redistricting? Absolutely. But the chances, I think, of them electing someone of the caliber of candidate as Marjorie Taylor Greene in one of those districts is astronomically low, you know? And, and, and I think that matters a great deal that those districts are still of the nature where if you, you nominate someone who is just unquestionably unqualified to be an elected official in this country, they're not going to win those districts uh, because that's just not the the electorate that they will be subjected to in the way that where you are gerrymandering, you can get wackos. Well, for what it's worth, <coughs> for what it's worth, uh, Colorado does have uh, that Congresswoman Laura Boebert, um, who I think is on a Marjorie Taylor Greene level. That's um, fair. That's and, fair. And one of her Democratic challengers actually just dropped out when the uh, Independent Redistricting Commission in Colorado released a map that drew her outside of Boebert's district. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean it, it appears there are other Democrats who will challenge her. And Boebert did only win her race uh, in the last election by six points. So that is not insurmountable in the way that Marjorie Taylor Greene's district is is very, very tough for a Democrat. Um, but yeah, those people, <laughs> they're, they're still, still going to run. They're still out there, yeah. And, and, and maybe I'm misremembering, but uh, I, I I thought that she sort of went crazy after getting elected and only sort of hinting at it before, but I, I, could, I will admit I could be completely wrong about that. Who knows what goes on out there in Colorado. That's true. I, um, I'm curious, though, Luke, are you alarmed at all about... To me, it does not feel like there are any political stakes or the chance for political blowback against Republicans for drawing gerrymandered maps in this special session. Yes, there are some advocates who are advocating for fair maps. They are critical of the process saying that there was not adequate response to public feedback. Um, But it does not feel beyond some very focused advocates. It just does not feel like there are high political stakes for Republicans to appear fair in drawing these maps. Is that concerning to you at all? Because that, I thought that would have been a larger piece of this conversation. And at least as we start special session, it doesn't feel like that's a factor at play. Yeah, I think, I think that is definitely less of an issue than I would hope it would be. But I think one of the key reasons why that is not is the fact that the Republicans have adopted a strategy that is not maximalist and 
had we had had they revealed a different set of maps that was more egregious, it could have over time become a bigger political issue. And I think if the consensus analysis that we have now, which, you know, it takes time to do these numbers and to actually dive into them and understand them uh, in a deep way. But, you know, probably more likely than not, this is about what these maps are going to look like and what the public opinion is going to be of them. I think it's just a lot harder uh, to campaign against them because at least in the current era of politics, I feel like there is uh, public acceptance that this is just what politicians do. And since it isn't so egregious that, you know, they've, you know, they cut Athens into, you know, 18 districts or, you know, something insane where you can just clearly point on a map and be like, isn't this ridiculous? Um, it's a lot harder to create that public outcry because, uh, I mean, to be fair, like looking at the 2002 uh, maps that Democrats make, I mean, they are insane i mean they're just very obvious to look at them it's like whoa that looks bad and that's not what these maps are and so i think that's part of it is it's just it's just like looking at them they don't look insane even if they are on the ground level insane and if you actually dive into the data there's things that are crazy about them but just on the you know looking at it test it passes and i think that makes it a lot harder for there to be a big public outcry about it so that's what's going on with the state maps. The congressional map is also a little more in flux. Uh, last time we recorded, we talked about a draft congressional map that was released by leadership in the state Senate office. I believe this was, it came from Jeff Duncan's office, which also signified that it may not actually represent the views of the majority of Republicans who will have uh, a role in drawing these maps, and notably the State House, Speaker Ralston's office has not released a House version of the congressional map. Uh, but Luke, I know we, uh, I think we maybe spoke too soon about the implications of the congressional map as it was drafted in the State Senate. Um, what do, what are your thoughts about the congressional map as it stands now, and, and what you're looking for when we get a better idea of what it might look like? Well, I think, you know, the first thing is to just say that this is Jeff Duncan's map primarily and maybe exclusively, and that's unlikely to be the final map. And I think what's so notable about that is that Jeff Duncan's political brand of, you know, trying to be the GOP 2.0 guy and trying to be the moderate, reasonable Republican, he created a map that, you know, passes the sniff test and passed my you know, first high level view. Cause I, I think that map had come out maybe a day or so before we recorded. And then, you know, 538, um, did an analysis of it. And it turns out that map actually, you know, takes two democratic leaning districts and turn them one into a very hardcore Republican district and another one into a, a toss up. And I think that just shows how easy it is to, throw the public off on what you're creating and what you're you're making in, in these maps because I think one of the other hard things that makes it when you when you create maps that don't just look bad and you create maps that you gotta really dive into the details to make voters realize that there's something unequal about them. It's because we all use different terms and language and metrics to 
come up with a map that's what you know is what is ideal because i i just remember um former congressman john barrow campaigning on the idea of creating maximal competitive maps and that even if you're in a state that is not competitive that you should make maps that are competitive and that competitiveness should be the primary metric that you're aiming for versus uh, proportionality which is you know if just to pick some random numbers if you had a state that was you know 70 percent republican and 30 percent democrat you should roughly have that proportion of seats and you know I, I think that is just something to think about when you're engaging these conversations that you know those are different goals and different metrics and so you know while those maps passed my sniff test when i actually had data in front of me it, they aren't reflective of the makeup of Georgia. And so it just shows the the uh, problems you can run into when you don't have that information in front of you. And so sorry for me <laughs> making a mistake and uh, uh, sending our, our listeners on feeling less concerned about a map that probably will never be implemented. <laughs> and whatever they do implement will probably be way worse. <laughs> well, but notably about that, it, so... I think the assumption still generally holds, at least until we see a House map, that Carolyn Bordeaux is likely in the 7th Congressional District to get a map, to get a district that is more Democratic than it is now. And that necessarily results in a much tougher re-election bid over in the 6th Congressional District for Lucy McBath. But the thing that we did not touch on specifically that, that came out later was how much more vulnerable it made Congressman Sanford Bishop's bid for re-election in the 4th Congressional District. And so, yeah, you, you know, if, if there's a chance that Republicans are more aggressive with a congressional map than the current one, than the Jeff Duncan proposal, um, then, you know, that appears to be where they think they can make gains. I mean, obviously you're not going to elect a Republican in the 5th Congressional District in the heart of Atlanta, but the the more marginal districts, um, you know, Republicans may be willing to go after those. All right, Luke, let's wrap up with one of the hottest rumors in Georgia politics. And to quote one of our nation's great philosophers, Lane Kiffin, get your popcorn ready, because this one is going to be a fun one. Uh, the AJC reported that David Perdue, former Senator David Perdue, is considering a primary bid against Governor Kemp of which some of Governor Kemp's campaign officials described as something that would be a complete betrayal. Um, The idea here is that there is no sort of pro-Trump alternative, viable pro-Trump alternative in the Republican primary for governor. Vernon Jones is in that race, but Vernon Jones has about as good a chance to win as I do. Um, So Purdue sees an opening there. And uh, the AJC report indicates that Purdue has talked to donors um, and basically floated the idea of a campaign. And and to date, as far as I know, he has not denied that he would consider that, even though earlier, uh, I guess this was earlier this year, he committed to backing uh, Governor Kemp's bid for reelection. Luke, how surprising, if at all, is this possibility that uh, David Perdue could launch a civil war within the Georgia Republican Party by challenging uh, Brian Kemp. I am surprised that David Perdue would want to do this. I am not surprised that other people would want David Perdue to do this. And I, I say that, you know, not because I know David Perdue. I have met him a couple times. Uh, but 
I just think it would be so much work with so much chance for failure <laughs> that someone who is an older, you know, politician who had, you know, a term in the Senate, you know, I think maybe you just want to be done <laughs> at that point. Uh, but that being said, I, there's a lot of things that make it make sense to me of why other people would push him to do it. You know, because for someone of Senator Perdue's age, I, I would think he would, you know, follow the advice of uh, former Senator Saxby Chambliss and just want to sit on his porch and drink bourbon and hang out with his grandchildren, which, you know... Sounds yeah, pretty nice. Sounds great. You know, he teaches at University of Georgia some, and I'm sure he's having a fun life. And I, I would, I would like think, to do all of those things. Right. It's like, I would think Purdue would enjoy that, <laughs> you know, finding that second act, uh, or, you know, for him, fourth, fifth, sixth, whatever act, because um, I know he's had a very long and interesting career. And so that surprises me that Purdue would be interested. Now, putting Purdue, the man, aside, there's a lot politically that makes sense. I think in the same way that Joe Biden has been having a rough time and some people think that he's floundering, I feel like that's equally, if not more true for Kemp and that he's never really seemed in control of the Republican Party in the state and that he has the former president, Donald Trump, who is one state to the South, really hates him and really wants him out. And you combine that with the fact that, you know, David Perdue comes from the Perdue family and their political ties run pretty deep. And there's a lot of people that, you know, have been friends and longtime supporters of Sonny Perdue, who is a former governor and for former agricultural commissioner for the previous administration. And he's one of the few people that never really seemed to like get on the bad side of Trump in his administration. And I mean, that's just like a powerful network for David Perdue to work with. And so I, 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 you know, I'm sure at this point he's probably done some internal polling. And I know last couple of polls I've seen of Kemp, he is not very popular and he's not very popular among the Republicans. And so, I mean, to me, there's a very clear path to victory for David Perdue in the primary. Um, I know you have some thoughts about that, but I think it's, it's really an interesting proposition for him. And I think while Democrats will probably lip, you know, be very excited <laughs> for this potential, I, I I think it could go either way um, for for us, and so I'll stop there. What your yeah, thoughts? I think Democrats probably uh, were pretty gleeful at seeing this news, um, and so I hate to pour a bucket of cold water on on everybody's enthusiasm, but I I think that this actually is, in some ways, really alarming to me that this prospect is out there for David Perdue because. If he does this, there will then be a pretty clear, pretty strong Trump slate among Republican primary candidates in Georgia. And we all know that Trump is personally invested in getting revenge against Brad Raffensperger and Brian Kemp for their failure to overturn the 2020 election in Georgia in his favor. And that, I think, almost necessarily requires, and I think most of the Republicans are pretty enthusiastic about doing this, but it requires them to basically center their campaigns around Trump's electoral misinformation and grievances. And if they are successful in doing that, and I think Purdue is even maybe the most important person um, whose success would matter here. I think that that is a very bad sign for 
some of the the larger conversations about the health of our our democratic governance that um, that we've been having. You know, I, I think Virginia pushes in the other direction. I think, you know, I, I'm sure that Democrats in Virginia are not excited to have a Republican governor, um, but they Republicans at least found political success by elevating someone who was not totally committed to Trump's electoral misinformation and dismantling of, of democratic norms. And I think that this Trump slate in Georgia, potentially headlined by David Perdue, if they are successful, they would draw a lot of their political power by relying on that sentiment among Republicans. And I, I find that to be particularly concerning. Um, you know, now it's possible that by doing so, particularly if Purdue decides to do this in a way that I think there there are a good number of Republicans who would, uh, at least Republican people active, like Republican consultants, political professionals, people active in Republican politics in Georgia, I think there's a good number of them that would view this as a betrayal, and it would and they would view it as um, weakening Governor Kemp and putting either a wounded Governor Kemp into a general election against Stacey Abrams or a uh, traitor, so to speak, of David Perdue, a traitor among Republicans of David Perdue in a general election with Stacey Abrams. And so it's possible that that dynamic would actually help tank Republican chances in a very winnable governor's race next year. Um, but it's possible that, that that that's not the case, that Republicans have this fight out in the primary and then they feel so scared of the possibility of a Stacey Abrams governorship that they come together and they put Republicans in office up and down the statewide ticket again in 2022. And they'll have a favorable national environment to do that. Just look back at our conversation about Virginia and look back at the 2010 and 2014 uh, midterm elections for Democrats in, in Georgia and across the country. And so I, I'm not... You know, I think a lot of Democrats are popping their popcorn. I'm, I'm not going to pop mine too quickly um, because I have a lot of concerns about where this could be headed. Well, I definitely agree with all those. The one thing I would add, though, is you, I think you underestimate the number of Republicans that feel like having Brian Kemp as the Republican nominee is the traitor because uh, he went against the God Emperor Donald J. Trump. So on that sense, I, I think they're it's equally possible that that will be the result if Purdue runs and loses that primary. Um, but I, I think there are risks on both sides of that equation for both Kemp and Purdue in a general election. And I think it's, it's kind of ironic because I think Purdue, if he ran against Kemp and won, would have been in a better position in a general election without Donald Trump. But the only way that he would actually win a primary against Kemp is with Donald Trump. So it's just, it's, it's, it's quite an interesting uh, scenario. And I think at least everything I've heard so far leads towards it probably happening. Um, but I, you know, we'll, we'll just have to see if it does and see how it plays out. Cause the time is definitely starting to run out because this, election would happen in May. And I mean, that's, that's, it's coming. <laughs> it's coming real quick. Um, as we wrap up here, Luke, any uh, final words for uh, Kasim Reed's political career? Because we haven't spent a lot of time covering the Atlanta mayor's race, but 
as you probably saw in the news by now, Kasim Reed fell short in his bid to return to the mayor's office. He missed the runoff for the mayoral election. There's going to be a runoff on November 30th between Felicia Moore, the city council president, and Andre Dickens, another member of the city council. Um, I'll be honest with you, I'm not super plugged into Atlanta politics, so I don't know particularly what the implications of of both of these candidates are. But I think the thing we do know, particularly watching state politics as we do, is that I think you and I both thought former Mayor Reed was going to be a really viable, really powerful candidate in this race, and and he fell short. Um, He is not going to be mayor of Atlanta again. Yeah, I think the first thing I'll say is I lost a lot of money on Predict It on Tuesday. (laughs) Not just because of Kasim Reed, but because some other people. Uh, but the, you know, the, I, I think the, there's a couple things. One, I think it's fascinating that Kasim Reed, who for, God, you know, 20, I think 2014 to 2020 was really seen as a rising star in the party and like someone who uh, people thought would potentially be part of a, Democratic administration or a future governor, a future senator. I mean, Kasim Reed's name was thrown out a lot. And I really thought with this being as big of a field for mayor of Atlanta that it was that he would be a shoe in for winning or at least a runoff. And which, I mean, you know, to be fair to him, he was pretty close um, at the end of the day to getting to the runoff. But I think um, there's a lot for Democrats to, to learn, especially for all the Democrats running for statewide office and these huge primaries to, to look at his race and look at how he failed to uh, galvanize the electorate because the electorate has definitely changed since he won his bids for mayor of Atlanta. And I think that's going to be some very valuable lessons for other folks running in Democratic primaries. Um, which effectively the mayor's race was, even though it was nonpartisan. Um, so I, I, I think it's probably good that we're moving on and finding other you know people. And I think the big lesson to me comes back to something I said earlier today, which was you got to move forward and you got to find candidates that are about the future and not about the past. And I think Terry McAuliffe and Kasim Reed are both you know, unfortunately for them, candidates of yesterday, and we got to find some new blood uh, to get the electorate energized, and they, they, they just weren't it. All right, well, I think we're going to wrap it up on that note. Uh, Luke, it was great to talk to you. Thank you, as always, for joining the podcast. Good to be here, and happy, uh, happy you drove all those miles so we could do this. Yep, Alrighty, Y'all stay safe. We'll talk to you again soon. Bye. Thanks for tuning into Peach Pod. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, take care, y'all.